recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia on TalkShoe. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Tonight is Friday, May 25th, 2012. Tonight I'm going to present the second half of Luke chapter 1. Last week, I presented the first half of Luke chapter 1 here on Friday, and, and I think that the, um, the important points were basically the, the refutation of the zeitgeist crowd and all of their lies concerning ancient mythology and, and, and the Hebrew concept of the virgin birth and, and the coming of the Messiah by way of a virgin birth. And, and I think that the, um, just as important as that in many respects is the fact that we saw from, from Irenaeus and, and from other ancient sources, but it could be seen plainly from Scripture, the partnership that Luke and Paul had throughout Paul's ministry, at, at least from the time of Acts chapter 15 and, and Paul's sojourn in Antioch and, and the events described there until the end of his life, it's fully evident from Scripture that Luke was with him every step of the way. It's fully evident from Scripture that Luke's gospel is the gospel which Paul preached. And, and Luke's gospel is the Christian identity gospel. And we will see more of that as we proceed. We'll see much more of that. And, and, and that's evident not only in um, Luke chapter 1, but it'll be evident in Luke chapter 2, in, in Luke chapter 11, in Luke chapter 10, in Luke chapter 19. It'll be evident throughout Luke. Luke's gospel and Paul's mission to the dispersed nations of Israel go hand in hand. And, and to understand them both, it is and and the acts which which also has a lot of um the, those same statements in it to understand them in a historical context is to understand christian identity and and paul was the first christian identity first christian identity preacher without a doubt i mean after yahshua christ himself the the um The programs I do next week, I'll be doing from the road. I, I may forget about this at the end of the program, right, to mention this. I'll be doing them from the road. Next week, I'll be at the home of um, Mark Downey of KinsmanRedeemer.com and his wife, Debbie. And, and um, I plan on doing my Friday and Saturday programs. From there, my Friday program will be Luke Chapter 2, and my Saturday program will be a program on the, the errors of Catholicism along with Mark Downey. That the on Sunday, June third, I'll be speaking at the um, the Fellowship of God's Covenant People, what which is um, that the assembly of Mark Downing and Pastor Don Elmore. So that ought to be fun. So I'll be doing my programs for next week from the road and for the next six weeks or perhaps seven from the road. I'll be in diverse places. And, and um, the talk shoe schedule will carry on as usual. And, and God willing, I'll be able to get the Saxon Messenger out on time as usual and everything else which I do. So with all that, this is um, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 1, Part 2. Last week, we ended with the account of the virgin conception of Christ in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 38, and that is where we shall commence this week, 
We must bear in mind that if we are pers- if we are persuaded that God made man, then we should be just as persuaded that it is half the task. The virgin birth seems fantastic, right? But if we believe that God made man, then we should be just as believing that for, for the Mary to have conceived Christ without the intervention of a human, of a, of a man, is half the task. It, it's only half as easy or half as difficult or half as incredible or half as amazing, no matter how you look at it. And, and so, so the virgin birth, while it is indeed a miracle, it's only half the miracle as the creation of man. If you think of it in those terms, well, well then it, that puts it in perspective, at least for me. While previously discussing these things, we saw that the promise of a virgin birth and of a Messiah resulting from that birth existed from at least 732 B.C. when the prophet Isaiah had written his prophecies concerning those things, which are found primarily in Isaiah chapters 7 and 9. We examined some of the attacks on Christianity made by those Jews who seek to belittle it, who lie about the origins of the Bible, and we saw their lies discredited. Ancient mythology was developed out of the meshing of fact and fancy. The need to pass down a heritage of knowledge and experience intertwined with the human desire for entertainment. Therefore, we find that many of the myths related of the related surrounding white nations had scenes and stories similar to those found in the Hebrew Bible. There's no doubt. This alone betrays the common original heritage of the white nations. If they didn't have those similar stories, then we should wonder. The Jew... The Jew craftily twists all of this out of context in order to discredit it all. In the end, it is only the Jew who should be discredited. This week, we shall begin with the same passage and, and cover what well, we're going to restep our tracks a little bit and, and start with Luke 1:30, which we left off with last week. Last week, we left off with Luke 1. Chapter 1, verses 30 through 38, I believe. And we'll pick up their list this week, and, and we'll discuss certain elements of it from a different perspective. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. And the messenger, or the angel, if you'll have it that way, and the messenger said to her, Do not fear, Mariam, for you have found favor before Yahweh. Now behold... You shall conceive in the womb, and you shall beget a son, and you shall call his name Yahshua. In the King James Version, and nearly everywhere else, the name is Jesus. There's a paper at Christagenia.org, which I wrote some years ago, entitled, Yahshua to Jesus, Evolution of a Name, which explains how, through the Greek, from Hebrew to Greek, and then through to Latin, and then into English, the Hebrew name, Yahshua, slowly evolved into the current English form, Jesus, and, and then with the, the advent of the J in our language, where it was, was pronounced 
after the manner of the French, like we would almost pronounce the Z-H letters as we pronounce the J today, but, well, then it became Jesus. In Exodus chapter 23, we see a prophecy of Joshua, the son of Nun. And I quote from verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee, to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Joshua, the successor to Moses, was a type foreshadowing Christ, and Christianity is the successor to the heritage of the Mosaic law. The name of Joshua in the same, is the same name in Hebrew as that of Jesus, which is Yahshua, the J sound being a rather late invention and, and the rest of the name being kind of um, per. I'm looking for a word and I lost it. I'm sorry. It it it's it, it suffered several changes through the through the various languages languages which it was translated from through the Greek and the Latin and the English perturbations. I think is the word I'm looking for. It suffered those various perturbations, and, and it became Jesus. But it's actually Yahshua. And even today in German, the J sound, the J letter, when it begins a word, it's pronounced like a Y. And that's how it originally was. From my own viewpoint, I prefer to use the name Yahshua much better, much better than the name Jesus because the original form of the name maintains its Hebrew meaning. Yahshua means Yahweh saves. Or perhaps, as some dictionaries define it, Yahweh is salvation which is descriptive of the very purpose of the Christ in the first place. So when we, when we reckon the name is Jesus, well, people understand us better, yes. That's, in, in today's modern world, people understand us better, and, and they know who we mean, and we, we shouldn't beat them over the head for using the name Jesus, because that's the way they were raised. But the name Jesus should be Yahshua. And, and that's the original form of the name, and, and that's evident just from that, that name Joshua in the Old Testament, that the King James translators, they knew that the original Hebrew form was Jesus. And when they translated the book of Acts, I believe it was the book of, I'm sorry, it was the book of Hebrews where Joshua from the Old Testament is, is mentioned, they wrote Jesus, but they meant Joshua from the Old Testament. From Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is Savior. Isaiah 43, 10, You are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know me and believe me. And understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved and I have showed when there was no strange God among you, therefore ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God. Yeah, before the day was, before the day 
when Christ was to come. Before the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. <laughs> I will work, and who shall let it? For I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. I skipped verse 14. Luke 1, verse 32. He shall be great, and he shall be called Son of the Highest. And Yahweh God shall give to him the throne of David his father. And he shall rule over the house of Jacob for the ages. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. The throne of David his father. Psalm 132, verse 10. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. Yahweh has sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall sit also, excuse me, upon thy throne forevermore. For Yahweh has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. Zion isn't the place, it's the people, the mountain of Yahweh, the mountain of God. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame but upon himself shall his crown flourish. Isaiah, 6, Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom and to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. Isaiah 16, 5. And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. Hosea 3, talking about the deported children of Israel, where David is a type foreshadowing Christ. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and shall fear Yahweh and his goodness in the later days. That throne must be here on earth. If Joshua Christ is to take that throne in person at his return, it must be here today. That's a separate topic, but if the scripture is to to be fulfilled if David is never to want somebody sitting on a throne ruling over the children of Israel somewhere on this earth, it must be here today. Another Yahshua in scripture is that Joshua, the high priest, who along with the prophet Zechariah had lived in the days following Zorobabel and the rebuilding of the temple. He was also portrayed in the, he was actually a contemporary of Zorobabel. He was also portrayed in the prophecy as a type foreshadowing Christ in Zechariah chapter 3, which I will quote. 
And Paul quotes from Zechariah chapter 3 several times in relation to the new covenant and in relation to Christ. Verse 1. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Yahweh rebukes thee, O Satan. Even Yahweh that is chosen, Jerusalem, rebukes thee. Is not this a firebrand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spoke unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine, thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the change of raiment. This is indeed prophetic of Christ. And Christ was clothed with the change of raiment. Joshua the high priest is being set as an example for a type of Christ. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, from verse 53, this decay wants to be clothed in incorruptibility and is mortal to be clothed in immortality. And when this decay shall have put on incorruptibility and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then the word that has been written shall come to pass. Death has been swallowed in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? So that change of raiment is, and Paul uses it as an example, it is indicative of the resurrection and the glorified body of Christ. Verse 34, But Mariam said unto the messenger, How shall this be, since I have not known a man? To repeat Isaiah 17, 7, verse 14 once more, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, Yahweh himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a Hebrew phrase which means God is with us. The word gnosko here is actually in the first person present. I know, I do not know a man. I've taken the liberty in my translation for the sense of our English idiom to write, I have not known a man. The phrase, and, and I made the assertion last week because many people want to insist that that word parsonos, which means a virgin, really means a young woman. Well, here Mary, with this statement, tells us what a parsonos is. She had not known a man. Well, she did know a man in the literal sense of the word. She knew a lot of men in the literal sense of the word. She didn't know a man in the sexual sense of the word. She was a virgin. She had not lain with a man. And replying, the messenger said to her, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and the power of the highest shall overshadow you, for which also the Holy One being born shall be called Son of Yahweh. Adam was also the Son of Yahweh, as we read right here in Luke, 
in Luke 3.38. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I quote from verse 45, and just as it is written, the first man, Adam, came into a living soul, the last Adam into a life-producing spirit. While all white Adamic people are children of God, and that is attested to in Scripture, only two men had come directly from God himself, the first Adam in Genesis, and Christ at the, at the Nativity. And for that reason, Paul calls Christ the last Adam. There were only two of our kind who came directly from Yahweh. Deuteronomy 14.1, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. In Acts chapter 17, where Paul is talking to the Jepesite Ionian Greeks at Athens. These are Jepesites. They're not under the covenant. Paul doesn't talk to them about mercy, the law, sin. He only talks to them in the context of the greater Adamic story of our race and of the wider promises made to our race. Those promises which came to the entire race long before the time of Abraham. Which start in Genesis chapter 3.23, right? Unless the man reach out and grasp the tree of life and live forever. That's the first promise of redemption. Paul in Acts chapter 17, and, and these are, it can be established, Jephthites, the Ionian Greeks, the children of Javan in Genesis chapter 10. And that's historical, and that could be demonstrated in historical inscriptions. And he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said. For we also are his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring or the children of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Paul is talking to the Essenians, in that context, in that wider context of the promises made to the entire Adamic race. The Pharisees, caught, the Pharisees saw Christ's claims to be the Son of God. They saw those claims not through the Bible. Through the Bible, if they knew the Scripture, they wouldn't have had a problem with those claims. They saw those claims through Roman customs, rather than through Hebrew customs. In Rome, and, and, and at that contemporary Roman customs, in Rome, the man whom the emperor adopted as his son, beginning with the adoption of Tiberius by, August, by Augustus in, in 10 AD, used the title Caesar and was recognized as the second in command of the empire and equal to the emperor that he would replace. This is the basis for the Pharisees' later accusations against Christ, that he was committing blasphemy and attempting to subvert the empire as they accused him because he claimed for himself to be the son of God. They accused him of making himself one with God. The living emperors were also being 
deified by the Romans from the time of Augustus and were being worshipped as gods. And the Pharisees were making these accusations against Christ based on this Roman perception and these Roman customs. Luke one thirty six, And behold, Elizabeth, your kinswoman, she also has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who is called sterile, because not any word is impossible with Yahweh. And Miriam said, Behold, the maidservant of Yahweh, may it be with me according to your word. And the messenger departed from her. The text of verse 37 may have been translated because not anything spoken is impossible with Yahweh. While Miriam was told these fantastic things, she understood that they must have come from God himself. She displays her piety and her humility by her willingness, her immediate willingness to comply with whatever she had been told. Verse 39, And Miriam rose up in those days, and went with eagerness to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered into the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened, as Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mariam, the infant in her womb jumped, and Elizabeth was filled of the Holy Spirit. The Codex Sinaiticus has that the infant in her womb jumped with exaltation. Verse 42, And proclaimed with a great cry and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Again, to demonstrate many, the nature of many of the differences in the various ancient manuscripts, rather than the words proclaimed with a great cry, the codices Sinaiticus and Ephraim Siri have and cried out with a great voice, while the codices Alexandrinus, Bazai, and the Textus Receptus have and proclaimed with a great voice. Where the text here is following the codices Vaticanus and Washingtonensis. I know that, I know that that stuff is trite and it's probably boring, or, or, or you might wonder what that has to do with the actual story. We'd rather know the story, right? Well, well um, it, it's important to see some of, the, so, some of the differences among the manuscripts that are illustrative of most of the differences in general. Most of the differences among the various ancient Greek manuscripts are, are really trivial. They really don't matter to our faith at all. But that there are five or six major interpolations into the scripture that were made in the medieval period that do matter, such as the end of Mark and, and, and certain interpolations in, in Luke in the later chapters and in 1 John, chapter 5, that there's an, an interpolation that was put there to support the Trinity, right, of the Catholic Church, that there's some of those interpolations matter, but there's only really five or six major interpolations that really make a difference that, that believing them would cause parts of one's Christian doctrine to change. So I like mentioning the differences among the manuscripts every so often to illustrate that most of them really are pretty trivial. It's the mistranslations that are, that are, <laughs> that are more horrible. Verse 43, 
And how can this be with me, that the mother of my prince should come? To me, Elizabeth is demonstrating the knowledge that Mary was the mother of the Messiah. Even though she was the number of mother of John the Baptist, she knew somehow that Mary was the mother of the Messiah, and that's what this verse 43 illustrates. For behold, as the sound of your greeting came into my ears, the infant in my womb jumped in exaltation. And happy is she who believes that there will be a fulfillment of the things spoken to her from Yahweh. There are two words in these passages which are not really synonyms, but they are often translated as synonyms, and I have to point them out. The words of Makarios, Makarios, Strong's number 3107, is blessed in the King James Version. Liddell and Scott have Makarios. They define it as blessed or happy. It is happy everywhere in the Christogenian New Testament to distinguish the word from another word which does mean blessed, and that word is eulogatos, and that's number, Strong's number 2128. And the verb eulogeo, which in the passive sense is to be blessed, and it appears in verse 42 of this chapter. Eulogatos appears in verse 68, and it's an adjective. Makarios signifies internal happiness. It signifies internal bliss or prosperity or anything that feels good that would make you happy, right? And, and that's the way we use the English word happy. So makarios should be translated happy. It should not be translated blessed in order to distinguish it from eulogatos, which means spoken well of or blessed by others and not by oneself. You could be happy within your own self and others could hate you for it. And, and quite often out there in the, in, in the, 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 the mainstream world, we, we do feel that way, right? And, and that, does, that is true. That does happen. Eulogeo is to speak well of, and therefore eulogetos is spoken well of, and that is how we perceive the word blessed. And, and somebody spoken well of or blessed, we usually perceive them as being blessed by God, right, or thought well of by God. The mainstream translations all fail to make the important distinction between these words. I think it's important anyway. One can be happy without being blessed. One can be blessed without being happy. The, 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 the ancient prophets that, that um, Ezekiel was, was certainly blessed, he, he certainly had the foreknowledge in the word of God and, and was chosen to record that word. And, and look at what he was put through. Look at what he had to go through on account of that word. He, he had to lay on one side of his body naked with a, 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 a small amount of food for, for three months or four months and turn over, roll over, and lay on the other side of his body for, for not so long a time. But still, I, I mean, the prophets were, um, were, were put through many trials. They were blessed for it, and, and I'm sure they'll have their reward for it. But 
that they were blessed and and they I don't think they were happy in in the sense that we what we see the word right Luke one verse forty six and Miriam said Yahweh has magnified my life and my spirit rejoices in Yahweh my Savior because he has looked upon the low estate of his servant for behold from this time all the generations shall pronounce me happy that word is Makarios because the powerful one is done greatly by me and holy is his name and his mercy is for generations and generations for those who fear him okay Ganea in the Christogenea New Testament and and in normal Greek usage is usually race Ganea Strong's number 1074 primarily means race but in some contexts, it has to mean generations, and this is one of them. Here in verse 48, this context, since the word Ganea is used with the phrase, from this time, so we see that that sets the context for it, and it's in the plural, it is therefore properly translated generations. Then in verse, 40, then in verse 49 in context, Ganea is twice in the plural, generations also what where I'm sorry in verse 50 where it says his mercy is for generations and generations for those who fear him so on these occasions Ganea should indeed be translated generations when the word Ganea is used in this manner referring to periods of time and it is used in this way on occasion in the New Testament. There are a couple of other occasions. We cannot imagine that because it is used in this manner, it, still lo- it somehow loses its original meaning of race. The word means race. In the context of the Bible, any statement referring to a generation of a particular people alive at any particular period of time or even all generations of that people still does not intend to include generations of other races in the scope of its meaning in other words the word mean when it means generations meaning all of the people alive at any particular time it doesn't lose its meaning of race it means generations of people of a particular race who were all alive at one time you can't take the race out of the genes it's not possible you can't take the meaning of race out of the word Ganea even if it is used in different ways in different contexts Luke 1 verse 51 for he has made victory by his arm he is scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Psalm 89.10 Thou hast brought down the proud as one that is slain. With the arm of thy power, thou hast scattered thine enemies. Mary is showing her knowledge in the Old Testament by glorifying God with Old Testament phraseology. And, and with the intention of showing the fulfillment of those Old Testament words in Christ. Proverbs 334 from the Septuagint. 
Yahweh resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Luke 1.52 He has deposed potentates from thrones, and he has elevated the lowly. Those who hunger, he has filled with good things, and those who are rich, he has sent away empty. I'm sorry, I'm drinking more than normal tonight. It's warm. Psalm 34 from the Septuagint. Fear Yahweh, all his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The rich have become poor and hungry. But they that seek Yahweh diligently shall not want any good thing. From the wisdom of Sirach, found in the Septuagint Apocrypha, Chapter 10, verse 14. Yahweh has cast down the thrones of proud princes and set up the meek in their stead. Yahweh has plucked up the roots of the proud nations and planted the lowly in their place. Yahweh overthrew the countries of the heathen or the countries of the nations and destroyed them to the foundations of the earth. He took some of them away and destroyed them and has made the memorial to cease from the earth. And of course we see the nations of the old world have been destroyed. The Assyrians, the Canaanite nations, that the, the Canaanites are still here. There are still people descended from the Assyrians here. But those once proud and mighty nations are gone. Egypt is a hellhole. Persia Persia is destroyed. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the full armor of Yahweh for you to be able to stand against the methods of the false accuser. Because for us the struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against realms, against authorities, against the rulers of the order of this darkness against the spiritual things of wickedness among the heavenly places. Mary says, He has deposed potentates from thrones, and he has elevated the lowly. Up to the advent of Christianity, world rulers made their own laws, and very often insisted that they themselves be worshipped as gods. The king of Tyre, the kings of Egypt, the pharaohs of Egypt, the emperors of Rome, the kings of Assyria, they insisted that they be worshipped as gods. There's all kinds of historical proofs of that. A lot of commentators somehow spiritualize Ephesians 6.12, applying it to unseen places in a heaven in the sky or in a heaven on another plane that is deceptive. Paul defines for us exactly what he means in Ephesians 6.12 through his explanation in Ephesians chapter 3 where he describes his purpose, and especially in verse 10. And I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, because there, in verse 10, but we have to see it in context, we will see what Paul means in Ephesians 6, 12, by 
our struggle being not against blood and flesh, but against realms, against authorities, against the rulers of the order of this darkness, against the spiritual things of wickedness among the heavenly places. Here's Ephesians from chapter 3, verse 1. For this cause, I, Paul, captive of Christ Joshua, on behalf of you of the nations, if indeed you have heard of the management of the family of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard to you, seeing that by a revelation the mystery was made known to me, just as I had briefly written before, besides which reading you are able to perceive my understanding in the mystery of the anointed, which in other generations had not been made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed in his holy ambassadors and prophets by the Spirit, those nations which are joint heirs and a joint body and partners of the promise in Christ Joshua, through the good message of which I have become a servant in accordance with the gift of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in accordance with the operation of his power. Paul wrote some long sentences. To me, the least of all the saints has been given this favor to announce the good message to the nations, the unsearchable riches of the anointed, and to enlighten all concerning the management of the household of the mystery, which was concealed from the ages by Yahweh, by whom all things are being established, in order that the exceedingly intricate wisdom of Yahweh would now become known to the realms and to the authorities in heavenly places through the assembly. There's Paul's purpose. In accordance with the purpose of the ages, which he has done in Yahshua Christ, our Prince. Paul is not preaching the heavenly places like the new Jerusalem of prophecy Paul was not preaching for the sake of teaching the devils or imagined evil spirits or imagined spirits in heavenly places on other planes of existence or, or in the first heaven, the second heaven, the third heaven, or, or, or in places that weren't on earth. Let's put it that way. Paul was not preaching to them the heavenly places, like the New Jerusalem of prophecy, are those seats of power and government of the people of God, wherever those people happen to be. Paul thus explains the fulfillment of his original mission. As the words of Christ are recorded in Acts chapter 9, what was Paul's original mission? Where it was recorded of Hananias, but the prince said to him, Go, for he is a vessel chosen by me. Talking about Paul. He's talking about Paul to Hananias. Go, for he is a vessel chosen by me to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. When the people of God are just and obedient, they rule over themselves with the laws of their God because he is their only true king. When the people of God are in a state of apostasy, Yahweh their God delivers them into the hands of their enemies and their enemies rule over them. This is the story throughout the Old Testament, but it is just as true in the Christian era. 
In the Roman, Greek, Persian, and earlier world empires, the princes of this world, those merchant moneylenders and eternal panderers of immortality and destruction, always got the upper hand and oppressed the people. The prevalence of Christianity in the world precluded the Canaanite Edomite Jews from society, and it produced many beneficent Christian rulers under whom the people did very well. However, when the people fell into sin, the enemies of God always prevailed to rule over them. This is once again the very state which we find ourselves in today. The peoples of Europe descended from the Genesis 10 nations of the Bible, and those which descended from the ancient Israelites, already by the time of Christ being predominant among them, we see the purpose of the gospel spelled out in the opening chapters of Luke. And we see the fulfillment of that purpose carried out in the Acts and in the letters of Paul. Europe was meant to be Christian from its very formation. And if it is ever anything but Christian, it shall be ruled over by the Canaanite Edomite Jews. Our own recent history is full proof of that. We as a people have turned from our God and have worshipped the idols offered to us by the Jews, and now the Jews rule over us. Only through Christianity are the princes of this world overthrown. Mary's exclamation states the fact as if it had already been accomplished because its fulfillment is inevitable. This is talking about the seats of government here on earth. He has deposed potentates from thrones, and he has elevated the lowly. Those who hunger he has filled with good things, and those who are rich he has sent away empty. That happened when Europe adopted Christianity, and the Byzantine emperors excluded the Jews from ruling, from holding offices, from loaning at usury, from holding Christians as slaves, and every other nasty thing they do. That happened. Paul's preaching the gospel so that those in heavenly places would hear it. Well, Paul preached in the praetorium. Paul preached in the emperor's residence at Rome. He lost his head for it, but they heard it. And eventually, Christianity prevailed. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 3. That's what he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. That's what Mary's talking about here. Luke 1, verse 54. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel to call mercy into remembrance, just as he spoke to our fathers. To Abraham and to his offspring for the age, or that's a, a, another way in Greek of saying forever. So Mariam remained with her for about three months and returned to her home. These words are extremely important. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel to call mercy into remembrance. This is Luke's gospel. This is Paul's gospel. 
Paul didn't change anything from the Old Testament. The dispensationalists are lying about Paul, and, and 50 million lame Christians don't read the Bible for themselves. Just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring for the age or forever. Here again, in Luke's record of the words of Mariam, we see the exclusivity of the expectation in a Messiah being for the children of Israel alone. If Luke, as we saw all the evidence last week, if Luke was Paul's constant companion, and if Paul were somehow a universalist, why would Luke go out of his way to make a gospel account preserving all of the exclusivist words which we find in the opening chapters of his gospel? And we saw them last week in, in the first part of Luke chapter 1, and we'll see them next week in Luke chapter 2. The truth is that Paul was never a universalist, but rather those perverts who are universalists love to pervert and take Paul's words out of context. Mariam's words are most mindful of Psalm 98, and I'll quote from verse 1. Oh, sing unto Yahweh a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him the victory. Yahweh has made known his salvation. His righteousness has he openly showed in the sight of the heathen, or the non-Israelite nations. He has remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. This is a messianic prophecy, and Mary hearkens to it with her own words. Make a joyful noise unto the house of Yahweh. All the earth make a loud noise and rejoice and sing and praise. Sing unto Yahweh with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. With trumpets and sound of a coronet, make a joyful noise before Yahweh the king. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together. Before Yahweh, for he comes to judge the earth. With righteousness shall he judge the world and the people with equity. Luke 1, verse 57. Then Elizabeth fulfilled the time of her bearing and gave birth to a son. And her neighbors... This word for neighbors is a word perioikos, and it simply means those who dwell around her. And her neighbors and kinsmen heard that Yahweh had magnified his mercy with her, and they rejoiced with her. And it happened upon the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. Leviticus 12, verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel, and thou shalt say to them, Whatsoever woman shall have conceived and born a male child shall be unclean seven days. She shall be unclean according to the days of separation for her monthly courses. And on the eighth day she shall circumcise the flesh of his foreskin. Verse 60, And replying, his mother said, No, rather he shall be called Johannes, or John. We saw in Luke 1.13 
where it said, And the messenger spoke to him, Fear not, Zechariah, since your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall produce a son to you, and you shall call his name Johannes, or John. Zechariah, still dumb, still not able to speak, I should say, must have told his wife of all of this in writing during her pregnancy. The name John means Yahweh is a gracious giver, indicative of that mercy upon the children of Israel, which was about to be announced to the world. Verse 61. Then they said to her that there is no one from among your kinsmen who is called by this name. So they motioned to his father for that which he wished to call him. And requesting a tablet, he wrote, saying, John is his name. And they all wondered. Then his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue, and he spoke, praising Yahweh. It may be a lesson for us today that Zechariah remained dumb until he fulfilled his obedience. Paul speaks often of the free spokenness which we have in Christ. If we aren't in Christ, we don't deserve free spokenness. If we aren't in Christ, most people who speak freely, well, they speak the things of the Jews, don't they? Paul mentions that explicitly in Ephesians 3, chapter 3, verse 12. We see the insolence and the ignorance of whites everywhere today and their lack of scruples and their own disobedience. Luke 1, verse 65. And fear came upon all those dwelling around, dwelling around them. And the whole account, or all these words, were spoken throughout all the hill country of Judea. And it was put into the hearts of all them who heard, saying, Who then is this child? And indeed, the hand of Yahweh was with him. Then Zechariah, his father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people. Here we see in the New Testament, in an announcement of the purpose of the gospel, that Yahweh is the God of Israel, and that his people, which can only mean the original people of Israel, are the object of his redemption. Dispensationalism makes a fraud out of the Bible, and it makes a liar out of God. Rather, in reality, it's the dispensationalists who are frauds and who are liars. This is at least the third exclusivist statement concerning the scripture offered in Luke, Paul's companion. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Isaiah chapter 44 demonstrates Yahweh's stated intent to redeem Israel and none others. From verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant, I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel, Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. 
I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Speaking of Christ, Paul therefore tells the Ephesians in the first chapter of his epistle to them, from verse 11, in whom we also have obtained an inheritance, being preordained according to the purpose of he who accomplishes all things in accordance with the design of his will, for which we are to be in praise of his honor, who before had expectation in Christ, in whom you also, having heard the word of the truth, the good message of your deliverance, in which you also, having believed, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise, which is a deposit of our inheritance in regard to redemption of the possession in praise of his honor. The Israelites of, the Ju- of Judea had never lost track of the expectation in Christ. However, the ancient cast-off Israelites, Paul is explaining, also had that same promise. But these people had to be Israelites in the first place. And the people to whom Paul spoke at Ephesus were indeed among the descendants of those ancient Israelites. Israel had sold themselves in sin, and therefore Yahweh had to redeem Israel, buying them back with his blood. No non-Israelites could ever squeeze themselves into this equation. The same Paul said at Galatians 3.15 in reference to the covenant with Abraham, Brethren, I speak as befits a man, even a validated covenant of man, no one sets aside or makes additions to for himself. The meaning of redemption in the New Testament is that God, through Christ, would purchase his people back from their transgression, for which he had long ago put them away. Therefore, Luke 168, Zechariah is recorded as having said, Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people. This is the fulfillment of the law of the kinsman redeemer. It's found in Leviticus 25, verses 48 and 49. It's found elsewhere in the Old Testament as parts of diverse examples in different circumstances and instances. Here I will read the passage of Leviticus 25, verses 48 and 49, which is only one example of the laws of kinsman redemption put to work. Verse 47, And if a sojourner or stranger wax rich by thee, and thy brother that dwells by him was poor, and sells himself unto the stranger or sojourner by thee, or to the stock of the stranger's family. After that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him. Israel sold themselves in sin. Christ redeems Israel. Very simple. At Galatians 4.5, Paul states that Yahshua's purpose was that he would redeem those subject to law, that we would recover the position of sons. We, meaning the children of Israel, whom the Galatians were indeed descended from. 
The Galatians were descended from the Qumri of the Assyrian deportations, the House of Amri, the people later known as Chimerians, and also as Sacae and Scythians. In the same manner, Paul told the Corinthians, descendants of the Dorian Greeks, the Dorians having also emigrated from ancient Israel, that ye are bought with a price. And he told them that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. In the book of Job, Job 19.25, Job is said to have proclaimed, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the later day upon the earth. Psalm 74.2 is a plea to Yahweh, to remember thy congregation which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance which thou hast redeemed, this Mount Zion wherein thou hast dwelt, referring to the people, not to a place. Yahweh is described as the redeemer of the children of Israel quite often in the prophecy of Isaiah, and also in Psalms 25, 49, 78, and in Jeremiah 50, verse 34, and elsewhere. It is explained in Isaiah chapter 50 that the children of Israel, the peculiar treasure of God, and his possession since the days of the Exodus had sold themselves into sin. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1. Thus saith Yahweh, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it whom I have sold you? To whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened at all? that it cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? All of these promises of redemption, everywhere that redemption is mentioned in the Scripture, in the Old Testament, on, on, on many occasions, it's only for the children of Israel. They are the only ones who can be redeemed in the context of the Bible. Nobody else could possibly be included. Luke 1, verse 69. And has raised the horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. A keros is literally a horn. Strong's number 2768. The word horn often appears in prophetic writings to represent a king or some other important figure. We see it in Daniel chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, Revelation chapter 13. A horn can also represent kingdoms, but they usually represent kings. Luke 1.70, just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. Wherever we look in the prophets, and this is about the fifth or sixth now exclusivist statement in Luke chapter 1, Wherever we look in the prophets, the promises of salvation, redemption, and preservation are for the children of Israel alone. Whether the words were uttered long before Israel was cast off in the Assyrian deportations, or long after Israel was cast off, these promises 
have never been uttered for the benefit of anybody but the children of Israel. And these are the promises spoken of by Luke in chapter 1 of his gospel. Therefore, Luke's gospel must be confined by the context of these promises. They can't be. His gospel can't ever be extended beyond the context of these promises. And because Paul was Luke's constant companion, and because Paul's gospel was Luke's gospel, Paul's letters can never be taken beyond the same context. The person who tries to do so is a liar. Psalm 18, verse 17. He will deliver me from my, from my mighty enemies, from them that hate me, for they are stronger than I. They prevented me in the day of mine affliction, but Yahweh was my stay against them. To redeem us from our enemies, preservation from our enemies, and from the hand of all those who hate us. Jeremiah 50, verse 34. The Redeemer is strong. Yahweh of hosts is his name. He shall thoroughly plead their cause, that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. From Hosea chapter 13, after the children of Israel were told that they were going to be deported to Assyria, which is the gist of Hosea's entire prophecy, the purpose of it, from verse 4, Yet I am Yahweh, thy God from the land of Egypt. And thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. I did know thee in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. According to their pastures, so were they filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore they have forgotten me. And, and we see in good times how people always forget God. Therefore I will be unto them as a lion, as a leopard by the way will I observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps, and will rend the call of their heart. And there will I devour them like a lion, the wild beast shall tear them. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? Thy judges, of whom thou sayest, give me a king and princes. I gave thee a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. And as Hosea prophesied elsewhere, Israel would be many days without a king until the time of Christ. To bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant. From Jeremiah chapter 31, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. 
Paul spoke to the Romans in Romans chapter 2 about their fulfillment of this very thing. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No Yahweh, for they all shall know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. And I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus saith Yahweh, which gives the light, the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, who divides the sea when the waves thereof roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. The church are the people of Israel. There's no replacement theology in the Bible. Replacement theology and dispensationalism are ridiculous. They are absurd. They make God a liar. God's not a liar. The people who teach those things are liars. Thus saith Yahweh, if heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, saith Yahweh. Well, of course, man can't measure this, the, the sky, right? So that's not going to happen. Luke 1, verse 73 the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, which is given to us, being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies, there we go again, to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. We've forsaken Christ. We've forsaken our God. Now we're ruled over by those same enemies. We will be until we turn back to him. Paul defines the faith of Abraham. Here Luke hearkens to, in, in, in the words which he records, his gospel hearkens to the, that, that oath sworn to Abraham our father, which is given to us. Paul defines the faith of Abraham, and therefore Paul defines his reason for bringing the gospel to the nations of Europe. In Romans chapter 13, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 4, from verse 13, we see this. Indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring that he is to be the heir of the society or of the world, if you'll have it that way, but through righteousness of faith. For if they from of the law are the heirs, the faith has been voided and the promise annulled. Anybody could keep the law, right? For the law results in wrath, so where there is no law, neither is there transgression. Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain, to who? To all of the offspring, Romans 4.16. Not to that of the law only, in other words, not only to the offspring that keep the law, which at this time was only the people in Judea, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. In other words, the promise is certain to everyone 
of Abraham's offspring, whether they kept the law or not. Just as it is written, that a father of many nations I have made you. Before Yahweh, whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life, and calls things not existing as existing. That's an important statement right there. Who contrary to expectation and expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, according to the declaration. Thus your offspring shall be. And he not being weak in the faith, nor having considered his own body by this time being dead, being about a hundred years old, and the deadness of the womb of Sarah, but at the promise of Yahweh, he did not doubt in disbelief. Rather, he was strengthened in the faith, giving honor to Yahweh, and having full satisfaction that what he has promised he is also capable of doing. For that reason, for that reason, that he believed that what he was, had promised he was also capable of doing, for that reason, also, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Moreover, it was not written regarding him only that it was accounted to him, but also regarding us, to whom it was destined to be accounted. In other words, because we are those offspring, is what Paul's saying. To those who believe in he who raised Joshua, our prince, from death, who was handed over for reason of our transgressions, and was raised for reason of our acquittal. It was destined to be accounted to us, meaning to the Judeans and to the Romans, among others, because the original peoples of both of those nations were among those nations of Abraham's seed. They sprung from Abraham's loins. Abraham, as Paul explains here, was accounted righteous because he believed God when God told him that his seed, his literal offspring, would become many nations. And they did. Note that Paul repeats the promise to Abraham. He repeats this promise, that a father of many nations I have made you. And then he elaborates that Yahweh is he who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing. The promise was uttered to Abraham not long after 2000 B.C. When the promise was uttered, when this promise was spoken, there were no Germanic tribes. There were no Romans. There were no Phoenicians. There was not yet a Dorian or a Danan civilization in Greece. They weren't there. There was an Ionian civilization in Greece. They're Japetites. There were other Genesis 10 tribes occupying other parts of Europe, Africa, Mesopotamia, and the Levant. And they had done so for many centuries. But these were not the recipients of the promises of God, among which was that, the, was that promise that Abraham's seed would inherit the world. It can be proven 
through ancient history that the children of Israel were the ancestors of many, many of the later dominant tribes of Europe and the Near East. The children of Israel were the Germanic tribes. The children of Israel were the Galatahi. The children of Israel were the Phoenicians of Britain and, and, and Iberia. The children of Israel were the Parthians. The children of Israel were the Dan and Dorian Greeks. The children of Israel were the Trojans and the Romans. That is why Paul and the other apostles went to Europe. That is why Paul told the Romans. That's why he told the Corinthians. He told the Galatians. He told the Illyrians and the other tribes that they were indeed among the children of Israel being reconciled to Yahweh their God. The classics and archaeology help to prove this out. That is why Europe must remain Christian. Luke 1. Verse 76. And now you, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For you shall go on before the face of Yahweh to prepare his path, for which to give knowledge of the salvation to his people by the dismissal of their errors through the affectionate mercies of our God, by whom dawn visits us from the heights, to shine upon those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and was strengthened in spirit, and it was in the wilderness until the day of his manifestation to Israel. Knowledge of salvation was to come to the children of Israel, who were by this time, for the most part, inhabiting the nations of Europe. But nobody but the children of Israel was to receive this gospel. This exclusivist language, which we find again and again in Luke, is not found to the same extent in the other gospels. There is exclusivist language in the other Gospels, but not like it's found in Luke. We also, from the other Gospels, have no idea who those nations of Abraham are. Paul tells us who they are in all of his letters. And the classics and archaeology can demonstrate that Paul was right. This is, this exclusivist language, which we find in Luke, is the result of Luke's having, as he tells us when he opened this chapter, closely followed from the first in all things accurately, to write to you methodically, that you may decide concerning the certainty of the accounts which you were taught, as he stated his purpose at the start of his gospel. And this is the gospel of Paul, which was only to those nations having descended from Abraham's seed. And we see that explained by Paul as his purpose in Romans chapter 4 and in many other places. And we see that here in Luke's gospel 
And Luke and Paul were constant companions. This is also, to some degree, and I discussed the Ebionites in the opening of this series last week, discussing the first half of of Luke chapter 1. This is all... This is also, to some degree, why the Ebionites hated Paul and Luke. The Ebionites did not understand why the gospel should be brought to the nations of Europe, because they did not understand the history of Israel in the ancient dispersions. The Judaizers, however, saw the opportunity to rule over these newly converted Christians with Old Testament rituals which Paul rejected, since those rituals do not belong in the New Covenant, and Paul knew it. And therefore, that is central to his theme in his epistle to the Hebrews. Eventually, the professional priests, both the pagans and the Judaizers, came to prevail over Europe through the corruption of the Romish church. I will be discussing that next week with Mark Downey on Saturday. But none of that can be blamed on Paul. That's Luke chapter 1. Thank you for listening. I'll be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren. I don't know what we're going to discuss. He's keeping it a secret from me. Pray, Yahweh, good night, and I hope to see you tomorrow.